Section ten of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter twenty four. Ten thousand pounds reward. The Associated Merchants Bank are authorized to offer a reward of ten thousand pounds for information which will lead to the arrest and conviction of the leader of what is known as the Crimson Circle Gang. In conjunction with this reward, the Secretary of State promises a free pardon to any member of the gang, other than one actually guilty of willful murder, providing that the said member will furnish the information and evidence requisite to the conviction of the man or woman known as the Crimson Circle. On every hoarding, in every post office window, on every police station board, the announcement flared in blood-red print. Derek Yale, on his way to his office, saw the announcement and read it and passed on, wondering what effect this would have upon the minor members of the gang he had been engaged to hunt. Thalia Drummond read it from the top of a bus when that vehicle had pulled up close to a hoarding to take on a passenger, and she smiled to herself. But the most remarkable effect of the poster was upon Harvey Froyant. It brought a colour to his face and a light to his eye which made him almost youthful. He, too, was on his way to the office when he read the announcement, but hurried back to his house and took from a drawer in his study a long list. They were the numbers of the banknotes which the Crimson Circle had taken, and he had compiled them laboriously, almost lovingly. With his own hands he now made another copy, a work that occupied him until late in the morning. When he had finished, he wrote a letter, and enclosing the new list of notes, he addressed it, posting the letter himself, to a firm of lawyers which he knew specialised the tracing of lost and stolen property. Haggits had rendered him good service before, and the next morning brought a representative of the firm, Mr. James Haggit, the senior partner, a widened little man with a chronic sniff. The name of Haggit was not one which was universally respected, nor did lawyers, when they met, speak of it with affection or regard. And yet it was one of the most prosperous firms of lawyers in the city. The majority of its clients were on or over the borderline which separates the lawful from the unlawful, but to the law-abiding also it was very useful, and was frequently consulted by more eminent firms whose clients wished to recover valuable goods which had been taken by the light-fingered gentry. In some mysterious way, Haggits could always place their finger upon a gentleman who had heard of the property which was lost, and in the majority of cases the missing article was restored. "'I got your note, Mr. Fryant,' said the little lawyer, "'and I can tell you now that none of these notes are likely to go through the usual channels.' He paused and licked his lips, looking past Mr. Froyant. "'The biggest fence of all has gone, so I'm not doing him any injustice when I mention the fact.' "'Who's that?' Rabazon was the startling reply, and the other stared at him in astonishment. "'You don't mean Brabazon of Brabazon's bank?' "'Yes, I do,' said Haggard, nodding. I should say he did a bigger business in stolen money than any other man in London. <laughs> you see, it could pass through his bank 
without anybody being the wiser, and as he did a lot of business abroad, and was constantly changing and rechanging money for export, he got away with it. We knew who was fencing it. At least, when I say we knew, he corrected himself, we had a shrewd suspicion. As officers of the court, we should, of course, have notified the authorities had we been certain. I thought it better to call to explain to you that it's going to be a very difficult job to trace this money. Most stolen notes are passed on race courses, but quite a considerable number find their way abroad, where it is a much simpler matter to change them, and where they are ever so much more difficult to trace. You say it was the Crimson Circle who did it. Do you know them? asked Froyan quickly. The lawyer shook his head. I have never had any dealings with them at all, he said. But, of course, I knew about them, and enough to know that they are clever people. It's likely that this man Brabazon has been doing their work, consciously or unconsciously. In that case, they might find a difficulty in disposing of the stuff. For a banknote fence is one of the hardest to find, what am I to do when I track one of these notes and have discovered the person who passed it? I want you to notify me at once, said Froyant, and nobody else. You understand this is a matter on which my life may hang, and if by any chance the Crimson Circle get to know that I am trying to recover the money, it will be a very serious thing for me. The lawyer agreed. The Crimson Circle apparently interested him, for he lingered and skilfully plied his employer with questions without Mr. Froyant realising that he was being pumped. "'There's something new in criminals,' he said. "'In Italy, where the black hand thrives, the demand for money, followed by a threat of death, is quite a common occurrence, but I should not have thought it possible in this country. The most amazing thing of all is that the Crimson Circle holds together. <laughs> I should imagine,' he said thoughtfully, that there is only one man in it, and that he employs a very considerable number of people unknown to one another, and each having his particular job to perform. Otherwise he would have been betrayed a long time ago. It is only the fact that the people serving him do not know him that makes it possible for him to carry on. He took up his hat. By the way, did you know Felix Marl? A client of ours is under charge of burgling his house. Mr. Barnett, you may not have heard of him. Mr. Froyant had not heard of Flush Barnett, but he knew Marl, and Marl interested him almost as much as the Crimson Circle interested the lawyer. I knew Marl. Why do you ask? The lawyer smiled. A strange character, he said. A remarkable character in many ways. He was a member of the gang engaged in frauds on French banks. I suppose you didn't know that. His lawyer came to see me today. Apparently, a Mrs. Marl has turned up to claim his property, and she has told us the whole story. He and a man named Lightman made a fortune in France until they were caught. Marl would have been sent to the guillotine, only he turned state's evidence. Lightman, I believe, went to the knife. What a charming man Mr. Marl must have been, 
said Mr. Froyant, ironically. The little lawyer smiled. "'What charming people we all are when our lives are laid bare,' he said. And Mr. Froyant resented the implied censure, for it was his boast that his life was a book. He might have added, in truth, a bank book. So Brabazon was a dealer in stolen notes, and Marl a convicted murderer. Mr. Froyant wondered how Marl managed to escape from his term of imprisonment, which must have been a severe one, and he inwardly rejoiced that his business relationships with the deceased had not ended even more disastrously than they had. He dressed and went to his club to dine, and his car was running into Pall Mall when a hoarding poster showed under the light of a lamp and reminded him of the unpleasant fact that he was a fifty thousand pounds poorer man that night than he had been in the morning. Ten thousand reward, he muttered. Bah! Who is going to turn King's evidence? I don't suppose even Brabazon would dare. But he did not know Brabazon. Chapter 25 The Tenant of River House Mr. Brabazon sat in a chill upper room of River House, eating slowly a large portion of bread and cheese. He wore the dress suit he was wearing when the warning came to him, and he was a ludicrous figure in the smartly fitting but now soiled and dusty garb. His white shirt was grey with the grime of the house. He was colourless, and his general air of dissipation was heightened by the stubbly beard that decorated his face. He finished his repast, opened the window carefully, and threw out the remnants of bread. And, passing through the trap-door, he descended the ladder and made his way to the big kitchen at the back of the house. He had neither soap nor towel, but he made some attempt to wash himself without their aid, utilizing one of the two handkerchiefs he had brought with him to the house in his flight. With the exception of the clothes he stood up in, an overcoat and the soft felt hat he had seized when he made his escape, he was quite unequipped for this undesirable adventure. The provisions which the mystery man had brought the night after he had reached his hiding place were almost exhausted. He had spent twenty-four hours without any food whatever, but in his agitation had not realized the fact until the stranger arrived, carrying a basket of foodstuffs. As to his nerves, they were almost gone. A week spent in that hovel without communion with man, with the knowledge that the police were searching for him, and that a long term of imprisonment would automatically follow his capture, had played havoc with his placid features, and to the solitude had been added the terror of a search. He had shrunk in a corner behind a door which opened to the inner room leading to the garret, whilst the detective had explored the room. The memory of Derrick Yale's visit was a nightmare. He settled himself down in the old chair that he had found in the house to spend yet another night. The man whose warning had sent him flying to cover must come soon and must bring more food. Brabazon was dozing when he heard the sound of a key put into the lock below and jumped up. He tiptoed carefully to the trap-door and lifted it, and then he heard the booming voice of the stranger. "'Come down,' it said, and he obeyed. The previous interview had been in the passage, where the darkness seemed thicker than anywhere else in the house. He had accustomed himself to the darkness, and walked down the rickety stairs without mishap. "'Stay where you are,' said the voice. "'I have brought you some food and clothing. You will find everything you need.' You had better shave yourself and make yourself presentable. 
"'Where am I going?' asked Brabazon. "'I have taken a berth for you on a steamer leaving Victoria Dock tomorrow for New Zealand. You will find your passport papers and ticket in the grip. Now listen. You are to leave your moustache, or what there is of it, unshaven, and shave your eyebrows. They are the most conspicuous features of your face.' Brabazon wondered when this man had seen him. Mechanically, his hand stole up to his shaggy eyebrows, and mentally he agreed with the mysterious visitor. "'I have not brought you any money,' the voice went on. "'You have sixty thousand which you stole from Marl. You closed his account, forging his name to his cheque, believing that I would settle with him, as I did.' "'Who are you?' asked Brabazon. "'I am the Crimson Circle,' was the reply." "'Why do you ask that question? You have met me before.' "'Yes, of course,' Brabazon muttered. "'I think this place is driving me mad. When may I leave this house?' "'You may leave tomorrow. Wait until nightfall. Your ship leaves on the following morning, but you can get on board tomorrow night.' "'But they will be watching the ship,' pleaded Brabazon. "'Don't you think it is too dangerous?' "'There is no danger for you,' was the reply. "'Give me your money.' "'My money?' gasped the banker, turning pale. "'Give me your money.' There was an ominous note in the voice that spoke in the darkness, and tremblingly Brabazon obeyed. Two large packets of money passed into the gloved hand of the visitor, and then, "'Here, take this.' This was a thinner wad of notes, and the sensitive fingers of the banker told him that they were new. "'You can change them when you get abroad,' said the man. "'Couldn't I leave tonight?' Brabazon's teeth were chattering now. "'This place gives me the horrors.' The Crimson Circle was evidently thinking, for it was some time before he spoke. "'If you wish,' he said. "'But remember, you are taking a risk. Now go upstairs.' The order was sharp and peremptory, and meekly Brabazon obeyed. He heard the door close, and peering through the dusty windows he saw the dark shadow stalk along the path and disappear into the darkness. Presently he heard the gate click. The man was gone. Brabazon groped for the bag which the other had left, and, finding it, carried it to the kitchen. Here he could show a light without fear of detection and he lit one of the scraps of candle he had discovered in his search of the house during the week. The stranger had not exaggerated when he said that the bag contained all that Brabazon required, but the banker's first thought was to examine the money which the other had put into his hand. They were notes of all series and all numbers. His own had been in a series, and yet they were new. He looked at them curiously. He knew that new banknotes were not usually issued higgledy-piggledy, and then— he guessed the reason. The Crimson Circle had blackmailed somebody, and had asked that the notes should not be numbered consecutively. He put the money down and began to change. It was a very smart Brabazon who stepped cautiously through the gates, carrying his bag an hour later, and yet so remarkable was the change which the shaved eyebrows had made, that when, at eleven o'clock that night, he passed one of the many detective officers who were looking for him, he was unrecognized. 
He had engaged a room in a small hotel near Euston Station and went to bed. It was the first night of untroubled sleep he had enjoyed for over a week. The next day he spent in his room, not caring to trust himself abroad in daylight, but in the evening, after a solitary meal served in his sitting-room, he went out to take the air. He was gaining in confidence, and was now satisfied that he could pass the scrutiny of the ship detective. He chose the less frequented streets, and was passing near the museum when he saw a bill newly pasted on the hoarding, and stopped to read it. As he read, an idea took shape. Ten thousand pounds and a free pardon. It was by no means sure that he would escape in the morning. More likely was it that he would be detected, and at best what would his life be? The life of a hunted dog, for which even his money would not compensate him. Ten thousand pounds and freedom. And nobody knew about the money that he tricked from Felix Marl's estate. He would put that in a safe deposit in the morning, go straight to police headquarters with information which he felt sure must lead to the Crimson Circle's undoing. "'I'll do it,' he said aloud. "'I think you're very wise.' The voice was at his elbow, and he swung round. A little stocky man had walked noiselessly behind him in his rubber-soled shoes, and Brabazon recognised him instantly. "'Inspector Pa!' he gasped. "'That's right,' said the inspector. "'Now, Mr. Brabazon, will you come a little walk with me, or are you going to make trouble?' As they went into the police station, a woman came out, and the pallid Brabazon failed to recognise his former clerk. He stood in the steel pen whilst the story of his iniquities was told in the cold, official language of the warrant. "'You can save yourself a lot of trouble, Mr. Brabazon,' said Inspector Parr, "'by telling me the truth.' I know where you're staying, at Bright's Hotel on the Euston Road. You arrived there late last night, and your passage is booked in the name of Thompson to New Zealand by the Isinger, which is due to leave Victoria Dock tomorrow morning. Good God, said the startled Brabazon. How did you know that? But here Inspector Pa did not inform him. Brabazon did not intend lying. He told everything he knew. All that had happened from the moment he was called by telephone and told to make a getaway, until he was arrested. "'So you were in the house all the time,' said the inspector, thoughtfully. "'How did you come to escape Mr. Yale's search?' "'Oh, was it Yale?' said Brabazon. "'I thought it was you. There was an inner room, just a little storehouse, I think it was in the old times. I got behind the door and hid. He came almost to the door. I nearly died with fright.' "'So Yale was right again. You were there,' said the inspector, speaking half to himself. "'Now, what are you going to do about it, Brabazon?' "'I'm going to tell you all I know about the Crimson Circle, and I think I can give you information which will lead to his arrest. But you'll have to be smart.' He was recovering something of his old pomposity, Parr observed. "'I told you that he exchanged my notes for his, and his notes for mine.' I'm sure he did that because he was afraid of the numbers being taken, but my notes were in a series, series E-19, and I can give you the number of every one of them, he went on easily. He wouldn't change the stuff he got. That was Froyant's money, I think, said the inspector. Yes, go on. He dare not change that, but he will change mine. Don't you see what a chance this gives to you? 
the inspector was a little sceptical. Nevertheless, after Brabazon had been locked in the cell, he called up Froyant on the phone and told him as much of what had happened as was necessary for him to know. "'You've got the money,' said Froyant eagerly. "'Come up to the house at once.' "'I'll bring it up to the house with pleasure,' replied Pa. "'But I feel I ought to warn you that this is not your money, although it is the actual cash that was transferred by you to the Crimson Circle.' Later on, in Mr. Froyant's presence, he explained the situation. That spare man made no attempt to hide his disappointment, for he seemed to think that in whatever circumstances the money was recovered, he was entitled to claim. After a while, Inspector Parr got him into a more reasonable frame of mind. Froyant was talking quite calmly on the matter when he suddenly broke off with the question, "'Have you the numbers of the notes which Brabazon handed to him?' "'They are easy to remember,' said Parr. "'They belong to a series.' And he recited the numbers, Mr. Froyant making a rapid note on his desk-pad. End of section 10